Thank you. Thank you. Glad I've, I'm, there are people here. Um, we're going to continue looking at the book of Titus, and we're looking at chapter 3. And we're going to mainly, I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're, I'm going to mainly focus on verses 4 to 7. Basically, th- throughout the whole book of Titus, as Paul writes to Titus to encourage him to, uh, to teach the church on Crete, um, things that they need to know as Titus gets ready to leave. Um, one of the things that comes up over and over again that Paul is emphasizing is that the, they need to be a people who are displaying good works, that they are doing good things, that they're reflecting who God is, and, uh, and, and they need to be actually taking action and, and bearing fruit in their lives. He talks about good works over and over again. Um, and the thing is, though, God knows, and through Paul, um, reminds us of the fact that there is a tendency in all of us when we hear this message, you know, good works, good works, good works, that, that we can, it's very easy for us to just kind of start defining ourselves by our good works and our goodness and at least trying to be good people. Um, and so I think he, he gives us a, a real clear understanding of what, what life really is about and, and understanding God and relating to him is really about in the heart of chapter 3 right here. So listen to God's word as I read from Titus 3, verses 1 to 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would be active in our hearts and our minds, that you would Show us what you want us to see about ourselves and about you and that you would transform us as we consider your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Art or Tyler, would one of you guys just turn me down a tiny bit because I'm starting to hear a little bit of feedback at some points. That's going to drive me crazy, I think. Um, Thank you. So, Writing a resume has always been a struggle for me, not that I've written a resume recently or plan to in the near future, but back when I was, you know, younger and looking for jobs, 
I, I hated writing resumes. It was a real challenge for me to kind of think of what are my strengths? How can I best, you know, sell myself so that I am acceptable, so that somebody, you know, sees me as worthy of this position, of this job? I've always struggled to do that sort of thing. Um, I know some of us probably struggle more than others. Um, one person who doesn't have an issue with it, um, it's a fictional person, but if you've ever watched the TV show The Office, um, there's a guy named Andy Bernard. And uh, he doesn't seem to have a problem selling himself at all. There's, uh, the, one of the things that, that really defines him is the fact that uh, if you watch the show just even a few episodes, you know that he has gone to Cornell. He takes great pride in the fact that he went to Cornell and he thinks that really makes him a worthy person and he's kind of reminding everybody of the fact that he went to Cornell all the time. But there's this one um, episode where basically uh, there's a, everybody in the, or a lot of people in the office are, are applying for the job of office manager. And Andy Bernard throws his hat in the ring, and he, he applies. And, uh, and I just, you know, I found recently this, uh, this resume that Andy Bernard put together in order to apply for the job. And, uh, and here are some of the strengths that he lists, okay? Um, some of them, you know, impressive. Some of them maybe not so much. But, uh, but so some of his strengths are as follows. So he's, he's an okay salesman, but also an amazing friend and listener. He's able to overcome problems quickly, such as he had an anger management problem, um, for several episodes, and also having his heart ripped out by Angela, another person who works in the office. Um, he, he lists Cornell as his education, and Cornell is like in way bigger font, way bolder font than anything else on the page, and he, and he mentions that he graduated in four years without even studying. He lists that he, he has these different memberships in a fraternity, in, in a, an a cappella group called Here Comes Treble, that he played froth in college, which is a combination of frisbee and golf. That's, that's one of his strengths that he lists on his, his resume. He lists uh, some of his computer strengths are that he knows Microsoft Office and also plays Call of Duty, which is a, a shooter game, you know, that kids play. Um, he lists his languages um, as some of his strengths, that he knows French and also Pig Latin. Um, he lists all sorts of the instruments that he plays. And then some of his physical strengths. He says that he's well-groomed and has excellent posture. And, uh, and then lastly, a couple things. He, he mentions that he has really great text message etiquette on his resume, and also that he's really good at giving people awesome nicknames. So these are the things, you know, he, he considers his strengths. He doesn't have any hesitation in, like, listing all sorts of things, you know, no, no, matter, how, no matter how minute or silly they are, he sees himself as, you know, he, he's really all about selling himself, building his resume, showing that he's, you know, he's worthy, that he's significant. Um, I, I would just ask you guys, you know, just if you had a, if I gave every one of you a piece of paper right now and a pen, not that you're applying for a job, but um, just as you think about what are the strengths, if, if you had to list, you know, five, six, seven of your strengths that make you a valuable person, a significant person, a person that other people might want to, you know, know and, and, and everything, what would you list on there? What would you list as your strengths that make you valuable and significant. I'll give you a second to think about it. What would you list? I think um, every single one of us has this tendency to spend a lot of our energy um, attempting to sell ourselves, to build a resume for ourselves, to convince everyone that we have value, that we have significance, that we have worth. And when I say everyone, I mean ourselves, we're constantly thinking, you know, thinking about what are the things that, that, that help me feel like I have significance and value. We, we're constantly building a resume that, that pr we're trying to convince the people around us that we have significance and value. 
And I think if you have any kind of relationship with God or think about having a relationship with God, I think we also maybe think of what are the strengths that maybe make me acceptable in his eyes, make me a, a, a lovable in his eyes. Um, and we have this tendency to, to build these resumes to make our, ourselves acceptable and worthy and, and valuable. But, but Paul says that wholeness, worth, and I would, I would say that those things are encompassed in the idea of salvation. It, it, Paul says that these things are not found in what we do, in the, the strengths that we think we have, um, the good things that we have done, but rather only in what God has done for us. That is it. That is where wholeness is found. That is where satisfaction is found. That is where significance and value is found. Not in what we do, but in what God has done. And he says it really clearly here in verses 4 to 7. Um, in verse 5 he says, He saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us. Not because of works. The only way that we have a relationship with God and value and significance and acceptance in his eyes is because of what he has done and not what we have done. And so for a Christian, if you consider yourself a Christian, when it comes to your resume of, of the strengths that you should be listing as the things that make you significant, valuable, um, loved by God, accepted by God, they must only include the things that what God, of what God has done for you, okay? And that's what I want to do this morning is just look at these, these verses, 4 through 7, and list five things that Paul indicates must be on our resume, that we must look at as the strengths that give us value and significance. It's the things that enable us to be known by God and experience a relationship with him, okay? So the first thing that uh, he points out is that... Um, the first thing on our resume is that we have been treated with goodness by God, okay? Verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This is it. My entire well-being is not about me being good, but about God being good to me. This verse follows verse 3 that we looked at a little bit last week, right? And verse 3 lists all of these needs, that we have apart from God's work in our lives, that we might have had before we came to know God, right? That we were foolish. We were kind of clueless and didn't understand things, didn't understand spiritual things or the things of God. That we were easily led astray, that we were helpless, that we were slaves to various passions and pleasures, that we had all sorts of dysfunction in our life, in our relationships with others, hating others and being hated by one another. We are people in need and and then it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, the, the, the whole thing he's, he's pointing out is that in the midst of our need, God saw us and moved towards us. That's what it's talking about, about his goodness and his loving kindness. It talks about how God sees us in our need and has compassion and has moved towards us to care for us and to help us, to give us his goodness. He has moved towards us in the midst of our need and our weakness. 
Um, this is something that you see over and over again in the life of Jesus. As you, as you read the Gospels and you look at Jesus and, and his life and the way that he, he interacts with people, right? Whenever he sees someone in need, what does he do? He moves towards them to help them. It, you see it when he, he sees the woman who, whose son has died and they're having his funeral. What does he do? He sees her. He has compassion on her and he moves towards her with his goodness and his kindness to care for her, right? Um, the, the man who is blind, sitting beside the road, crying out for help in his need. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't walk on the other side of the road. He doesn't ignore him. He moves towards him with goodness to care for him in the midst of his need. The woman who is bleeding for years and years, who, who, who comes up to him and just touches him in the midst of the crowd, what does he do? He stops and he moves towards her to love her, to interact with her, to care for her. He moves towards her with his goodness and his kindness. The, 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 those were crippled. The guy who was, you know, who, who was by the pool and couldn't get to it in time, everybody else got in front of it, and, and, and Jesus saw him and moved towards him in the midst of his need to care for him, to love him in the midst of his need, to, to, to provide for him. And, and this is what, what God has done in showing us his goodness and loving kindness. It says, it, it, when the goodness of loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when it talks about God our Savior appearing, it's most likely referring to the, the appearance of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. It's in and through Jesus that God moves towards us in the midst of our need to say, I care, to say, I'm going I'm to work in your life, goodness, I'm going to show you my kindness through the appearance of Jesus and all that he has done. And so one thing that we have to get through our heads is that the, the, the first thing on a resume is, is the understanding that God has good intentions for us as we live our lives. That no matter what we uh, encounter in our lives, that, that God is always working for our good. That God is always showing us kindness. And it can be tempting for us sometimes when we look at life and it's not going the way that we want and it's painful and it's and things unexpected are happening it can be tempting for us to be like oh god doesn't care god isn't really that good but we need to we need to remind ourselves over and over that that god is all good and everything he does in our lives and towards us is good and so we are people one of the characteristics the defining character characteristics characteristics of those who who, who consider themselves christians or the fact that we know that God is good to us and that he's planning on doing good to us and that he's working good and kindness in the midst of the, even the, the difficult situations that we're dealing with. That's the first thing. The second thing that should be on our resume is that we've been shown mercy by God. We've been shown mercy by God. In verse 5, it says, He saved us not because of works, but according to his mercy. According to his mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is shown something that is given to somebody who deserves judgment. That's what mercy is. It is something that is shown to somebody who is guilty. Someone who needs forgiveness. Having this on my resume, that I'm a person who's been shown mercy by God, is an admission that I'm guilty. That I am, as verse 3 says, have been disobedient have lived my life in a way that has oriented itself around me, what I want, with me at the center. It's an admission of the fact that my life has been an offense to God. 
It's an understanding of the fact that, that, that I can only approach God with the knowledge that I have offended him deeply and, and done things and lived in, in ways that have, that have earned his anger and his judgment and his wrath and that there is nothing I can do to repair that relationship. I can't do enough to repair it. No matter how hard I try, no matter how nice I am, no matter how many good things I do, I cannot repair that relationship. The only thing that that can repair that relationship because I have damaged it so severely is if God decides to show mercy. And he forgives me. One of my... uh, favorite stories is the is the story of little women i've never read it but i've watched a bunch of different movie versions of little women and uh you know it's a it's a it's a story about four sisters and the second oldest is named joe and she she has these dreams of becoming an author and as they as they grow up together she's always writing this manuscript of this this fantasy story that she's reading to her sisters and they all you know like love to listen to her read what she's written and she's she's written this like you know thick stack of a manuscript of a story that she's writing and there's one moment in the story where uh, where she and her oldest sister go out to a party, and the youngest sister, Amy, really wants to go. But they're like, no, you can't come. And Joe's kind of, you know, even not really very nice about it, you know. You're too young. You can't come with us. And so they go out and leave Amy home alone. And Amy just sits there stewing in her anger and her bitterness. And what she does eventually is, is it doesn't take her long. She goes to where Joe keeps her manuscript, and she takes it out of the drawer, and she throws it into the fire, and she burns it completely burns it. And so Joe gets home from the party later, and she, and she wants to go right, and she go look, goes to look for the manuscript, and it is gone. And she doesn't know where it is, and she starts, like, searching all over the house, and then eventually she finds out what Amy has done. And she is furious with her, right? There is nothing Amy can do to bring that manuscript back, to, to, to fix the, the situation, to fix what she has done. There's nothing that she can do. And the only thing that can repair that relationship is if Joe decides to show mercy and forgive her. And that is just a tiny little picture of how we have offended God in our, in our everyday life, in the, in, the, in the ways that we have just lived, ignoring his desires and values and standards and the ways that we've just put ourselves at the center and cared primarily about what we have wanted and what we desire rather than what he desires for us and for those around us. We have offended him deeply and there is nothing that can repair that relationship. There's nothing that we can do. The only thing that can be done is if he shows us mercy. That's the only way that we can approach him in absolute dependence on his mercy. The third thing that we need to make sure is on our resume is that we've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. We've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. One thing, unless you are completely oblivious, unless you are completely self-unaware, is that you need to change. I need to change. We need change. We need to grow. We need, to be, we need an overhaul in our hearts in the way that we treat people, in the way that we respond to life, in the way that we feel about life and things. We need change. We need to, be, we need to become more mature people. We need to become um, more loving people. We need to change. And this is one thing that, that God says he has done through the work of the Holy Spirit. He says this, that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, then, then you have hope for change. You have the opportunity to actually grow and become a better person, to become a person that actually reflects God's desires, that reflects who God is, that actually is capable of loving people well and caring for those around us and being faithful. We have hope for change because the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us and we have been made new. It says we've been renewed, we've been regenerated. We are different now than we used to be. Why? Not because we have done anything special, but because he has poured out his spirit upon us. And it's not that he's just given us a little bit of his spirit. It says he's poured out the spirit upon us, what? Richly. Richly. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, in verse 6. He has not just given us a little that we can try to work with, you know, a little bit of his spirit, but he's poured out so much lavishly. I mean, I don't want to say wastefully, but that kind of gets the idea across. God doesn't waste anything, but, but there is so much of the Spirit working on us, poured out upon us. It's rich that we have more than enough to be washed and to be made new and to be different, to actually make different choices, to treat people differently, to speak differently. He's given us more than enough to be washed and changed. Um, sometimes when I think about the Spirit's work in my life, I tend to think of, uh, more of the image of, the, there are moments in my life when, when I've, um, you know, maybe I'll mow the grass in the afternoon, then I'll go inside to take a shower. And the thing is, it's, it's the middle of the summer, so we're filling up the pool in the backyard. So we have the, the, the hose turned on full blast to fill up the pool. So you know how that's going to affect the water pressure in the shower. So I turn on the water, and it's just kind of like, you know, gravity is just kind of allowing it to fall out of the, out of the, out of the, the shower head, you know. But, but I'm like, well, that, I can work with that. I can work with that. So I get in, I start, you know, lathering up, you know, soaping up my hair, shampooing, and, and there's like, there's shampoo falling down my face. It's getting in my eyes and everything. And, it, and it's time for me to rinse off the shampoo out of my hair. And it's at that moment that somebody decides to flush the toilet. Or maybe wash a few dishes in the, in the sink and they turn on the, the, the sink. And you know what happens then? There's just like this little trickle that's just like hitting me in one place, you know? And I'm just like, There's no hope for me to get clean, to get soap out of my hair at that point, right? And that's kind of how I view the Holy Spirit's work in my life sometimes. Yeah, God has given me the Spirit, but really, I mean, there is so much to overcome in my life, in my heart. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe there's a little hope of getting a little bit, one this one area, a little bit, you know, cleaner, but... But the reality is, is it's, it's more like when, when he says he's poured out the Holy Spirit richly upon us, it's more of the idea of, of, you know, have you ever seen or maybe you've experienced, you know, at a resort when you, you take a shower in these deluxe bathrooms and there's this, this massive shower head that just like pours water down on you. And then there's also these, these like, you know, things shooting water at you from the sides as well. It's like everywhere, just hitting you from every direction. And it's impossible not to get clean. That's more of a picture of the Holy Spirit, how God has poured out the Holy Spirit upon us through what Jesus Christ has done. There is hope. There is hope. You can make different choices today, today and become different and grow. 
and it's because of what he has done, the spirit that he has given. Fourthly, he's declared us righteous through Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says that we are justified by his grace. Now, the word, the, there's the word justified here in verse 7, and then there's also back up in verse 5, he talks about, you know, that we're not saved by works done in righteousness, right? This word righteousness. The word righteousness and the word justified are related to one another. They're similar to one another. They have a, they're, they're both use the same root in the Greek. And uh, so what, what is righteousness, first of all? Righteousness is, is, is a life lived in perfect obedience to God's law. Righteousness is perfectly meeting the standard of God, his desires, his law. So a righteous, a perfectly righteous life is a life that is perfectly obedient to God. If you ever want to see a perfectly righteous life, look at Jesus. None of us live a perfectly righteous life. Actually, it's far from it. Our lives are full of unrighteousness. But that's why the word justified is so key and important. The word justified means declared righteous. That even though we aren't, as we live our lives, we aren't righteous, we aren't perfectly obedient to God, we, in, in our words and our thoughts and our deeds, every which way imaginable, because of what Christ has done, God not only forgives us, but he says, you are righteous. You are perfectly acceptable to me. You are enough because of what Jesus has done. That's what God says. That's what it means to be justified. And we're justified by grace, not because, again, what we have done, it's an unearned righteousness. It's not because of what we have done that we've earned this label of righteousness. It's because God has kindly, graciously, mercifully said, in spite of the fact that you're a mess, I'm going to call you righteous and I'm going to treat you that way. God has called us righteous. So much of our our energy is spent trying to declare to ourselves and to others that we are righteous, that we are valuable, as I said in the beginning, that we are significant, that we that we are have reasons for others to accept us and for God to accept us. Yeah, you, we hear the, the phrase all the time, you know, he, he, he tries to justify himself, right? By doing these things. I try to justify my existence at work by doing certain things. And yet, um, we, we do it in all sorts of ways. You know, we try to justify ourselves. We try to, try to declare that we have value and, 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 and significance by, by saying that, you know, do you, you ever, you know, find it kind of... Um, satisfying to mention that you've met somebody famous? Or uh, do you ever find it satisfying to, to kind of chime in and say that you know something that other people don't tend to know? You ever watch Jeopardy and, you know, you, you know more answers than anybody else in the room? That, that's a good sense of, you know, you get a good feeling when you do that. Um, others of us, maybe you notice it because you've done something nice, but nobody notices it. No, but nobody noticed it. And does it get you a little frustrated that nobody noticed that you did something nice that day? Because we want other people to notice what we have done um, in order to justify ourselves, in order to make ourselves feel that we are enough. But God says, because of Jesus, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, I not only forgive you, but I am declaring, you are enough. Hear my words, you are enough. You don't have to spend your life proving yourself to me or anyone else. You're enough. You're enough. 
We are those who are declared righteous through Jesus Christ. And lastly, we are people who are promised more and better. We're promised more and better. Verse 7 ends with a purpose statement. It says that basically God saves us. He washes us. He justifies us so that, in verse 7, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Every word in that chain of words right there in that sentence all speaks about the future, doesn't it? It all has to do with the future. To be an heir is to be somebody who knows that they have an inheritance coming to them, right? That's what an heir is. Somebody who is counting on receiving an inheritance in the future. To hope, the the verb hope is all about the future, isn't it? And the biblical idea of hope, it's not, you know, I hope this happens, maybe it will, maybe it won't. It's a certainty of what God is going to do, of what we are going to experience. That's what hope is about of experiencing God's goodness and love and power in the future. That's what hope is about. Eternal life. Yes, when, when we believe in Jesus, he gives us eternal life, and it begins the moment we receive Jesus Christ. But the very nature of eternal life is primarily future. And eternal life can start now, but, but the majority, the vast majority of that life exists tomorrow and the next day and in the future forever. That's what eternal life is. It's, it's a future life. So he has done all these things for us so that we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life, so that we might have hearts and minds that are fixated on the future and what God is going to do in the future. That what he has planned for us is more and better and only more and better. That's why Paul, when he says, um, when he's debating with himself about whether it's better for him to stay and, and, and minister or go and be with Jesus. He says, being with Jesus is better. The future with Jesus is better. That's why Paul says, you know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. We cannot even imagine what God is planning for us in the future. That's why the, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 gives this long list of of people who have lived their lives by faith. And he makes the point that that none of them have received what they were hoping for. They're still waiting for it. All that is more and better is still coming for them, getting us to look towards the future. It's why John in the book of Revelation gives us this this beautiful picture in chapter 21 of of the new heavens and the new earth to get us to to be like, "Ah, I cannot wait to see what God has in store for us. When heaven comes down to earth and God dwells with us and he wipes away every tear and there is no more sin and there is no more pain or suffering. It's only more and better. And it's all what God plans to do and to give to us. It's what C.S. Lewis, I think, tries to get across when he writes in the Chronicles of Narnia. For those of you guys who have read the series, um, if you haven't, then you must. But in the last book, called The Last Battle, um, he uses this phrase in there called, where he says, further up and further in. And, and it's, it, it refers to the, when, when the people um, have leave the, the world of Narnia and they come to what is essentially heaven. They come to what is essentially heaven and they, and they find that, that, they're, that under their experience of heaven is, is not what they expected. But it is greater and it is deeper and it is more beautiful. 
and there's this urge to just go further in to see more, to see what is greater and more glorious, the further they go in, further up and further in. And let me, let me just read this passage as they, um, the beginning of that, that moment when they, they come into this, this place that is heaven. He says this, It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. He shook his mane and sprang forward into a great gallop, a unicorn's gallop, which in our world would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run, and they found to their astonishment that they could keep up with him, not only the dogs and the humans, but even fat little puzzle and short-legged Poggin the dwarf. The air flew in their faces as if they were driving fast in a car without a windscreen. The country flew, pa- flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. God promises us, promises us more. He promises us better. Ultimately, that will be experienced when we all, those who are resting in Jesus and what he has done for us, when we reach heaven and, and, and Jesus returns and, and everything is made new, we will experience that more and better in a way that we can't even imagine. But even now, those of us who have trusted in Christ, I think we can even experience that as we continue to follow him. Even in the midst of the brokenness of life, The more that we trust him, the more that we put the weight of our lives on him, the more that we will find that it is only more and better. That he is enough, that he is good, that he is a treasure. One of the things that I noticed about Andy Bernard's resume is that it included multiple things like his memberships in country clubs and uh, yacht clubs. And... um, you know, his membership in these yacht clubs, country clubs, they had nothing to do with his merit. The only reason he was member, a member of these yacht clubs is because his parents were, or maybe his grandparents were, right? And it was just a reminder to me that the reality of, of Andy Bernard's life is uh, he thinks that he has accomplished so much in his life, but he is blind to the fact that, that he's really a, just a spoiled rich kid, that everything he has is because of what he has been given by his family. And he's oblivious to it. He's blind to it. Paul is saying to Titus, don't let this happen to the Christians on Crete. And and God is saying, I think, to us, don't let this happen to you. Our greatest asset, our greatest strength, the defining characteristic of who we are as Christians is what God has done for us, not what we do or ever will do. It's in the fact that, that we have a God who is always good, treating us with goodness, working all things for our good, as we have a God who has has provided a way for us us, us to experience peace, true peace with him. Freedom from our shame and our guilt, true peace. It's it's because God has poured out a spirit upon us so that we can actually become different people, the people that we should be. It's because we have a God who has done through Christ enough for us to to know that we are enough, 
that we are acceptable to him. And it's because we have only joy ahead. Because of what God promises to do. Will we receive that? Will we rest in that today, this morning, this week? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to rest not in our own strengths or what we think think we're capable of, but to rest solely in what you have done for us. To realize that uh, nothing can wash away our sin but the blood of Jesus. To realize that nothing can give us hope and joy but your promises and your work and your kindness and your love. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.